Hello, this is Jim the Keys bartender coming to you from Key Largo. How are you today? Last week, uh, it's a Monday, so last week I spoke to you about, it's still approaching, it's my uh, birthdays on, on Wednesday here, and uh, we had a lovely weekend. I worked, obviously, but I had off yesterday. We went to a... Uh, the wife and daughter took me out for dinner. I don't necessarily celebrate my birthday on my birthday. I don't really celebrate it. I just go and have dinner. And uh, I think you heard with that uh, I really don't worry about getting notoriety on, on that anniversary of your birthday. My father, I had a discussion with my father yesterday on the phone, and he thought, he, he said some of his uh, friends and relatives celebrate or take note of people's birthdays after they passed away. And my father says they don't have a birthday after he passed away. And I would just take note to him and say the original thing a lot of people talk about, you only have one birthday, the rest of them are anniversaries of your birthday. So... But whether you celebrate it or not, like a third world dictator, you know, making sure that you have a lot of, you know, a birthday party for a monarch or something like that. Uh, I always thought, you know, every day should be a celebration of life in the way you live life, in the way you view it, and you should be happy for it. And I was thinking about how fortunate I am recently for... uh, where I could have been in my life now, that where I am now, and that's what uh, sustains me. But what I've been thinking about a lot late, lately is, if you recall, since this, gosh, I don't know when they started them in the sixties and seventies. Uh, I I really didn't read magazines like Cosmo or Good Housekeeping or things like that. But they used to have these self-assessment tests, and they still have them now. Yeah, I'm on social media, show up on Facebook, and uh, you can assess yourself whether you're, you know, 10 reasons, you know, 10 ways to find out if you take this test to find out if you're a good husband or a good wife, or what the, if you're a stressed out worker, if you are a fun person, positive person, this, that. And the assessment test have, they're always quick tests and they always, you have to give, it's hard for you to give an objective answer about yourself sometimes. But your your weighing an answer you're giving about yourself when I was, I mentioned in a couple episodes ago, someone described me as a high energy person. And if someone were to give me a, que- a question to ask me if I, was a high energy person. I don't know if I'd be able to answer that the way the other person answered that. You know, whether my sister-in-law answered it, she, I, I wouldn't. So how accurate a test could be if I'm being asked to answer those questions, right? And it, and it spreads out to other things. There is a famous test called the psychopath test. And uh, it's a book actually written by Ron Johnson. It describes an application of a famous Canadian psychologist. 
and it's a 20 part 250 question maybe more it's called the hair h-a-r-e psychopathy checklist and they do these questions whenever you come to wrong test a long test a lot of times they just rephrase the question to give you alternate answers to see how you are answering the test so they can get correct data and you know they can just rephrase it put it in a different perspective and hopefully they can get an accurate profile well this hair test is supposed to detest psychopathic people and the book I mentioned the psychopath test reveals that confirmation bias plays a big role in hair's checklist if you think about it if you're giving someone a 20-part, 500-question test, you're presupposing there is a possibility of psychopathy. Or, you know, you wouldn't be, probably wouldn't be asking someone who is, you know, a, a scout leader or someone who works in a homeless kitchen, the psychopathy's test. So you'll be giving it to people that might have a high probability of that occurring or a higher probability of that occurring. But just giving the test gives the air of a predilection to being psychopath, being a psychopath. And the confirmation bias is something when your um, description of confirmation bias, I'm going to try to give the non-Webster is you're holding an idea and you're building a question. Let's say you're building a question, but you have an idea on how you want the question answered. Let's say you believe that uh, climate change is occurring and it's man-made. Now, every time with confirmation bias, you're going to give much more credit or credence to evidence that shows that man-made, uh, you know, uh, pollutants or output increases the climate change, and you're going to discount anything that flies in the face of that. So you're a lot of times with uh, scientists and. And doctors, now I'm not I'm not anti saying climate change isn't occurring. I'm just saying it's very hard to look at the counter evidence. We're not now. Conversely, if you believe man has nothing to do with, if you have a, um, you're holding a idea that says, well, I'm pretty sure that this climate change just occurs as it does, and I'm only going to look at evidence or give credence to evidence that shows that. Volcanoes, cow farts, um, you know, uh, solar flares or whatever cause climate change. And nothing man does really contributes that much to it. You're just a victim to it. And actually, a lot of times when you have the Petroleum Institute that funds these studies, if a Petroleum Institute, which is funded by the big oil companies, were to fund a study 
and spend millions and millions of dollars on this study, it would make sense they would get someone that wouldn't poo-poo their ideas. They're not going to hire a foremost climate scientist that believes that, you know, did all this study and found that man-made causes contributed uh, to climate change. They're going to hire someone that shows <clears throat> at least an inkling of at least agreeableness to see that it has nothing to do with the, um, you know, with, with those fuels that the Petroleum Institute is looking to, you know, to say, hey, this isn't causing it. It's these other things. And whenever the evidence would pop up to someone, let's say a study by the Petroleum Institute that shows that with vehicles, um, especially in developing countries and things like that, where, where more vehicles are being put on the road, that smog and deforestation and all these things contribute to it, they're just going to ignore that. And they're going to focus on more of the natural reasons. So people with vested interest, that also gives you a confirmation bias. Think about it. You're looking them. you're infatuated with somebody. Let's make it more basic. The first time you start dating somebody, let's say I'm dating, uh, or let's say this girl's dating this guy, and she thinks he's the end all of everything. He's the best. She's going to look at things that confirm that idea for her. He's handsome. He's strong. He cares about me. He's romantic. He's caring. He's thoughtful. And you're going to ignore some of the other things. Like when you get in a car, he may not, you know, he may not excuse himself when he farts. Or he may not walk you to the door. Or he might not slow down the car when he comes to uh, drop you off. Or knock on the door. Or remember your birthday. Right? Or remember that he was supposed to pick you up. And you might, in the beginning, you might remember those things. That, that's confirmation bias. You're just going to remember the things. And eventually, you can wear through confirmation bias. We'll talk about that a little later. But that happens in everything. Political, sociological, uh, romantic. I almost said romantical. So, you know, so sol- uh, in big groups of people. Confirmation bias. If you're prejudiced against a group of people. Let's say you're, you're prejudiced against, I'm going to create a group of people, Canadian Mounted Police. If you consider them, if they were a, you, you just said Canadian Mounted Police are scumbags. They're horrible. They're the worst people in the world. There's no redeeming um, quality of the RCMP. Okay, I think this is Royal Canadian Mounted Police. You're going to remember every time you see a story about them pulling over somebody that was drunk or speeding or doing a search. You're just going to hone in on that. And you're not going to think about all the times they stop and they help a lost child find their parents or 
help an older person with their groceries. You're just going to focus in on those things that show that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police are the worst people in the world. Now extend that to any group of people, whether you want to say Jewish, Muslim, Catholic, uh, Baptist, Hindus. And that's where confirmation bias works with prejudice. Because think of all the horrible races out there. They do not focus on all the good things on a different group of people. They'll focus on something, a real or a imagined facts that satisfy their worldview. I'm not saying it's right, but it is correct. Some, let's go, since we started on, I mentioned religion, evolution de deniers. That is probably one of the best ones. The world is six, um, if you're a Christian and you are anti-evolution, then the world is 6,000 years old. It was created in seven days. Noah had every animal, including if you go to the creation amusement park someplace in central, in the central part of the United States, they'll have dinosaurs. But they lived no more than 6,000 years ago. And uh, they, man was man from the beginning. There was no ancestors of man. There was really no evolution of anything. All the animals that were present uh, at the beginning were either, either died off or are present today. And whenever you confront them with evidence, they'll just point to their evidence and their evidence will be uh, something that would be incongruent with evolution or would not be easily explained or they point to the Bible. Now, evolutionary people will not, if you believe in the evolutionary science, they'll totally disregard the Bible as evidence. And in some ways, that could be their confirmation bias too, saying like there's nothing. There's nothing, there's no hand in the evolution other than uh, selection, natural selection. Or if you want a really good uh, description of confirmation bias, your horoscope. Your horoscope. How many people read their horoscope in the paper or look at it on, in social media? That that day you were born a month you were born, there is a certain segment that ascribes to you certain personality traits that are present in that group of people, predominant, and not in other groups of people. Let's say you were born in July 15th. So people that were born September 15th would have different characteristics because of the month they were born in. And they're influenced by uh, different constellations and planets and they read the, the confirmation biases when they read that they read into the description if you're a Leo let's say I think they're coming up in a week or so if you're a Leo you're, you're, you're strong 
uh, combative, this, that, and whatever thing. And people say, that's me, that's me, that's me. I mean, how many people out there are adopted and not, don't know exactly when they were born? we got older people that don't know when they were born. Someone was born in and went to a country that was kind of a, a third world country and they had spotty birth records. You know, you could say, well, I can tell by your personality. You probably were born, you know, November 3rd. Oh, okay. Well, that explains it all. I told the story once that we had uh, two uh, waitresses were, uh, I worked with were talking about uh, birthdays, and one mentioned that they were born in April, and the other one says, oh, I'm born in April too. People born in April are the nicest people. And I heard that, people born in April were the nicest people. And I said, you know, that's a nice sentiment. Do you realize Hitler was born in April? And they just looked at me and they go, you really had to say that? And I said, yeah, I did. Because of that blanket statement. Because there's a lot of horrible people born in April. And there's horrible people born born the day I was born. So. So all these things, it can, it, it, confirmation bias, it, it, involves our interactions with people whenever we see someone and um, you ever notice how a dog sometimes when your first time you meet it that people say my dog's really friendly and likes it likes everyone and then you go over to pet it and it starts growling well that dog may have said well this person smells exactly like someone that hit me with a stick or my former owner that wouldn't feed me and it would ignore me, not take me for walks. Well, that's the dog having a confirmation bias. They're not taking any. And people say, well, the dog knows if you're a good person. No, the dog doesn't know you're a good person. The dog might recognize that you share the same qualities of another person that they didn't get along with that well or they didn't like the way they were treated by. So, realizing that we have confirmation bias, I have confirmation bias. I see someone with a MAGA hat come in, make America great again. I just, I'm already biased. I'm thinking there's nothing I can say to get through to this person. And they're going to say some horrible stuff to me if they find out who I support. I don't have to be that way. Because I realize after trial and error, there's a lot of people I really, really, really like who happen to have differing views than I have. They do. And my bias, if I just, you know, when I see someone that, why would I just automatically discount someone when I know in my heart of hearts that I know people, even though they have uh, those hold those beliefs that I can really enjoy their company and have pleasant conversations with them, have meaningful conversations and interactions with these people and do things for them. And they do things for me. So that's one way. So whenever I get some idea in my head now, I can't say I always work on it, but I try. I try. And, and that, that 
bias extends itself to the way I feel sometimes. For example, when anxiety, I told, I, I may have mentioned to you listeners that ever since I stopped, went on back on the wagon, stopped drinking again, I did see a big increase in or notice of anxiety. I don't know if I was maxed, uh, masking it with alcohol before those five years I was out. I didn't have it as much when I was sober the, the, uh, the first seven years. I did have it prior to that. But when I was drinking, I had it. When I stopped drinking the second time, I started noticing it again. And when I started noticing uh, anxiety, it would multifold increase the effects. I would expect this is what's happening. My feeling anxiety is going to build up. It's going to get worse and worse. And this is something that's going to have manifest itself. And I would just get on this train. It's kind of like an anxiety train. And it'd be hard once you, what, what is it about a train? It's one of the characteristics about a train. Once this train starts moving, it takes a lot of energy to stop it. And, and then I started thinking recently, I mean, I always considered that pharmacology might be the best answer for it. And that's the addict speaking in me. I'm not poo-pooing pharmacology. It serves its purpose and it's important for people that are having deep-seated anxiety and stress and things like that because it manifests, anxiety and stress manifests itself by increased blood pressure, uh, headaches, uh, could cause, uh, you know, just cardiovascular issues in people as well as those just a deep-seated fear. When you, you, yeah, whatever symptoms manifest itself with anxiety, I got those. But I didn't have it as bad as other people. And I just started thinking about it. I said, was I feeding into my anxiety? I wasn't a believer in when it comes to anxiety and stuff like that. I'm not a believer in saying, hey, just pull yourself up by the bootstrap. But I do believe that we do have a responsibility to uh, alleviate those symptoms in ourselves, we have a responsibility to ourselves. We do. And once we do that, and you realize you're responsible to yourself, it may be a little easier. And one of the things I started noticing, and that kind of works with me, is that when I get anxiety, I, instead of trying to investigate ways to relieve anxiety, I don't view it the same way. I view anxiety as some change, as something else. I view anxiety as a positive sign. And they say, Jim, how can it be positive? And I said, well, positive for me. Sometimes it could, anxiety could be because I'm putting myself in a situation that's uncomfortable because I'm going to be doing something different. And doing something different could be a good thing, could be growth. People say, well, when you go into a place and you're unsure of yourself, that's where you can flourish the most, you know. You can always do the same thing, go to the same places, talk to the same people, do the same exact things. But whenever you do something that challenges you, you can actually you can view that as a growth opportunity. 
And I always think, well, I always try to think that when they start coming out. I know it's also when I have unresolved uh, labors I'm supposed to, things I have to do, responsibilities I have to take care of. If I don't take care of them, they'll pile up. And that piling up and me thinking of it causes anxiety. In, in associated with that, stress. You can, people view stress as something and say people that have stress or regularly feel stress have stressful jobs. On the average, die earlier than people that have lower levels of stress. But once you start viewing a stress as an opportunity to excel, meaning my body's ramping up for me, if I think this way, my body's ramping up for me to accomplish something. Accomplish something. We have a meeting with my friend from Oslo, uh, Norway last week. I had a, 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 a Zoom meeting. And sometimes when there's something new and I'm talking about it, I always get stressed about that. And you think, are you stressed because you're afraid? No, you're not afraid. Uh, or it is fear. It's fear that the things you are doing aren't worthwhile. That's one of the things that get me stressful. People point out and say, hey, listen, Jim, what you're doing is a waste of time. And nothing's going to come of it. That could cause stress. That could cause anxiety. I don't necessarily call stress and anxiety the same thing. I could be stressed and not feel anxious. Because when I'm working out, I'm stressed. My body's stressed. Today at the gym, I was instructing a spin class for some reason the ac was turned off the temperature obviously with the ac turned off we are in south florida it was a bit balmy in the room with no air moving through it luckily i didn't have a huge class i had a decent amount of people and i said well let's look at this it's warm in here let's use this to our advantage we're going to sweat we're going to loosen up. I took a little opportunity to warm up a little longer because we sweat a little earlier, feeling like we're exercising. And once we got warmed up, we worked a little harder. And I made sure to combat the heat that everyone hydrated themselves. I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just saying I could have concentrated on how hot the room was, stressed out about that, get anxious, get real worked up about it, but then look at the positive side. And I'm not doing that thing, hey, look at me, I'm looking at the positive side. All these things I'm doing is in order to help myself. Not to look good, but to feel good. I recently, um, because I'm going to be doing video pretty soon, I recently started doing the the white strips because I noticed, I said, oh, I don't like the color of my teeth. I don't like the color of my teeth. I kind of hide them. You know, when you cover up your teeth, uh, I sound like this, like I'm gumming my words when I'm talking or smiling with a tight smile, tight smile. Yeah, people with tight smiles aren't, you know, people say psychologically, they could could read someone by the type of smile. It could be just as little as they think their teeth are a little too off-white. 
and um, that's one of the things. I tracked a little away from that, but this is all these things I was talking about, anxiety, stress, doing these things, are the confirmation bias. Because when things, sometimes the way we look at things, when uh, we're presented with evidence during the day, it's raining. The coffee machine didn't start. You don't have time to have coffee before you leave the house. You're thinking, your confirmation bias, I knew it was going to be a bad day. And you're not looking for anything good then, right? You're not looking for that. You got up in time, you got clean clothes, you got a roof over your head. In my case, I didn't wake up hungover. And have a beautiful woman I'm waking up next to with a lovely daughter going to school today. And how fortunate I am to have those things. When you're living in depression or anxiety or stress, you're going to look for those things sometimes that only compound the implication that you're, that's your worthiest stress. It is stressful. It is anxious. It is, it is depressing. But in the words of Shakespeare, in Henry V, Three of the main characters are sitting talking down. They were friends of Sir John Falstaff, the comical, drunken character who was friends of Henry before Henry ascended to the front throne of England. And Falstaff was a comic character. And his three uh, friends, Falstaff's friend, Nim, Bardolph, and I forget the other guy's name, but... They're all talking, and John Falstaff was sick, and he, they're just informed that he died. And one of the characters says, Sir John has died. Don't be unhappy, because we're alive. We're alive. He wasn't saying, don't warn John, but he says, don't, all is not lost, we are alive. So that's the big, that was the basic of the thing. So this is horrible. The guy that we depended on, John, was the, uh, a lower-level lord, but these guys were just kind of mooks uh, in English society. And the one guy who was a member of the aristocracy, their entree to that society, died. And they're all depressed. Their friend died. Their, you know, the protector and all that stuff. But they got one guy said, listen, though we're alive, so rejoice. There's always a good way to look at something. That's why I was talking about that and breaking that confirmation bias that we have about ourselves, about the world we live in, about the day we're having, about other people. And if we can break that, you can make the day the, any way you want it to be. And you can make yourself differently. Well, I'm going to leave you with that. Thank you a lot for listening today. Have a great day. And I'll be back again. Maybe tomorrow, maybe Thursday. Bye.